Tonight, Miss Amanda Taylor is coming. Come on, Miss Amanda, give her a hand as she comes. She's going to talk about the relationship of communion. So come on, take us in. Well, hello, family. It's always exciting to to be in the house of the Lord, right? It's always a, a good place to be, no matter what uh, what you looked, what you faced today, being in the house of the Lord is always a, a good place to be. There's excitement whenever we gather together and we, we enter into his presence and just, just journey through his word and allow him to speak to us um, in a powerful way. And God is still a God who speaks. Amen. He's still a God who, who speaks to us. And so um, when Pastor Zach asked me to, to teach tonight, my, my mind went a million different directions at, at first. And um, I was thinking about, you know, all the different approaches that I could take whenever it comes to communion. And, and I thought, you know, I need to be really methodical in, you know, in my approach. And there was a part of me that thought, you know, I really need to teach the way that Pastor Zach teaches um, because he lays things out. Out so clearly and I am not one of those people per se I am someone who likes to take the long way around and so I threw the whole methodical thing out the window really fast um, and and thought nope we're not going to do that so what we're going to do tonight is we are just going to take a walk we are going to walk through scripture because God is literally offering us his hand and saying, just take a walk with me. And, and that's the way that, that we're going to do this tonight. So hopefully you are, you are ready for that, uh, for that walk. So you also may know that I'm a type A personality, so I like to have a title. I don't know if I have any more in the room that like to make sure there's a title, you know, on the top of my page. And um, I always leave that little extra space. That way, if the title's given later on, I can fill it in. So I'm going to give you two options. The first option I'm going to give you for tonight, and this is going to say a lot about your personality, okay? So you ready? So whatever title you choose is really going to talk about uh, who you are, or maybe it's going to say more about who I am. I'm not for sure. So the first title is going to be the relationship of communion. That's the traditional, right? That's the calm one. If you consider yourself to be a little bit more trendy tonight, if you consider yourself to want to go against the norm, if you consider yourself to want to stand out among the crowd, then your title of choice is going to be Jesus and Jelly Roll. That may make no sense to you right now. If you have no idea of who Jelly Roll is, then maybe you should choose the first one. (laughs) But that's okay. Uh, I'm going to explain that one here in just in just a little bit. And it's okay to laugh in the church. It's okay to to approach His Word from a position of enjoyment. We don't have to be a um, a formal staunchiness inside of us, but we can come to Him with just joy and laughter. Uh, he is a God of laughter. So, uh, so of course. You know, as we journey through this, as we take this walk, I was, I was thinking about my first interactions with communion or my own interactions with communion. And I think like most of you, it was in the church. That's where, you know, of course, I first got that experience. That's when I was able to take, you know, my first communion. But I, I never really thought about doing it in my home. I didn't really, I didn't really think about that until you know a couple of years ago when I was I was navigating something that I needed to be really intentional about, right? So I was walking through something and I needed to be intentional about it, but I also needed to remove every piece of me from the equation. Like I couldn't let my emotions get in the way. I couldn't get my anxieties or my fears. I couldn't get let my desires to get in the way. But I needed to be intentional and I needed to step in and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was telling me to step when he was telling me to step. That there was nothing in my own understanding or my own desires that was navigating this situation. And so I wanted absolute certainty that I was in the will of God. And I went through all the things. I thought about prayer, I thought about fasting, I thought about time in my word, but I needed something else. I needed something, I don't want to say different, but I needed, because of the delicacy of this situation, I needed to make sure that I was operating in the fullness of God. I needed to step into him and operate as him. 
And I know that makes some of us uncomfortable. There were even moments as I was writing down my notes and getting my thoughts together that, that the voice in my head said, Amanda, you can't say that. You can't say that you need to operate as him or you need to step into him. But that's what communion is. Communion is an invitation to the table, not as a guest, but as a child of the home. Let me say that again. Communion is an invitation to the table, not as a guest, but as a child of the home. You see, if you were going to ask me to dinner, which none of you have, by the way. I'll just throw that out there, but that's okay. I'm not bitter about that at all. But if you were going to ask me to dinner, there would have been some formalities to that. I would follow certain etiquettes for you. Okay, so when I come up to your house or show up to your home, I'm going to knock on the door. I'm going to wait for you to invite me in. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm dressed for the occasion. I'm going to greet you formally. Uh, I'm not just going to be like, hey, how are things going? But there's probably going to be a formal greeting there, right? Because my parents raised me right, and I'm still scared of them even at 40 years old. Um, so if it got back to them that I did not respond well, I would probably, you know, uh, there would be ramifications of that. So uh, I'm going to make sure that I follow the, the proper etiquettes, right? Because I'm a guest in your home. When we sit down at the table, I'm going to set up straight. I'm going to place my napkin in my lap. I'm going to make sure that I don't put my elbows on the table. All of those things. But when my parents ask me over for dinner, all that goes out the window. I'm going to show up in sweatpants and a t-shirt. The formality is going to disappear. I'm not going to greet them in such a formal way, but I'm going to greet them in a way that shows relationship. I'm not going to greet them as a, I need to keep some distance between us, but I'm going to greet them differently, not out of disrespect, but because I'm comfortable in my home. I'm comfortable in my home. And I'm not for sure where we get this, but we almost come to this idea that everything we do with God has to be formal. And I want to tell you tonight that that is not the case. Again, I'm not talking about moving into a level of disrespect. I'm talking about moving into a level of comfort with our Father. I'm talking about pulling up a seat at the table that he clearly says is ours. I'm talking about not shying away whenever he gazes at us, but I'm talking about being, uh, being comfortable in everything that he wants to provide for us. You see, communion is an invitation to the table, not as a guest, but as a child of the home. And so let me give you a definition of communion that this is not a theological definition. This is a, uh, an Amanda Taylor definition, I guess you could say. And it's basically this. Communion is intimate relationship with the Father. It's sharing and exchanging personal thoughts and feelings. It's a fusing together. It's the act of ingesting. It's not just Jesus on you, it's Jesus in you. It's not just something on you, but it becomes a part of who you are. And that's how Jesus described it. Go to the book of John with me tonight in John chapter 6. We're going to look first at verses 53 through 57. And we're going to unpack a lot of things from this particular chapter. And so we're going to go a little bit kind of back and forth. Okay, you know I can't do everything in the, uh, the norm. I mean, I just gave you a title called Jesus and Jelly Roll. So that tells you that we're stepping outside of the box tonight. So John chapter 6, verses 53 through 57. And I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Version. It says, so Jesus said to them, I assure you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So to understand the weight of how communicate or how communion ushers us in to this intimate relationship with Christ, we have to look at the conversation before Christ gave this teaching. Context matters. So go up several verses and let's look at John chapter 6 verses 25 through 35. And this is where we're really going to camp out tonight. So we're going to go back to this a couple times, but starting in verse 25. It says, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one who he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat, verse 32. And Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And in verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me who will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever thirst again. This week I was skimming through, you know, social media and looking at headlines and things like that, and I come across an article. And it, it just kind of caught my attention. And the article was titled, The 12 Ways to Have a Crowded Funeral. Kind of a provocative, you know, concept there, I guess. And so when I come across things like that, I normally, you know, it catches my attention and I go into the article, but I don't read the whole article. I just want to know the 12 steps. Like, tell me the, the 12 ways to have a crowded funeral. And so, like, why would we want to have a crowded funeral? You know, what's the, what's the purpose in that? And so when I think about that, I think that if everybody comes to my funeral, then it's kind of a morbid conversation, right? If everybody comes to my funeral, but they're there to celebrate my life, so surely that means my life had meaning. I mean, nobody in the room says that whenever, you know, God call, decides to call me out of this thing, that I want everybody to be like, well, she didn't really do anything in the first place. That's not how we want our lives to be remembered. We want our lives to be remembered as if they had meaning. And so I was going through this particular article, and again, you know, if it's something like, um, you know, the five ways to be a godly woman, you know, I'll look at that article and I'll think, oh, I do that really well. Well, I don't do this well, so we're just going to skip that part. You know, that one wasn't wise. Um, or, you know, yeah, I got this one, or I don't agree with that one, or whatever the case may be. And I just knew that I wanted my life to have meaning. Twelve ways to have a crowded funeral. I knew that I wanted my life to have meaning. I knew that I wanted my life to be celebrated. I knew that I wanted my life to have an impact. And I really wanted the place to be, like, packed out. I'm going to be a little selfish here. Like, I wanted, I wanted it to be standing room only, right? Like, I need everybody to come up. Like, I need them to say, no, Amanda, we can't have your funeral, or, you know, to whoever who's planning this thing. Like, we can't have this funeral in just a small, you know, auditorium. Like, we need to have it in Bush Stadium. There's going to be a lot of people. Right? Like, that's what I want to happen. I want my life to have that much of an impact that, you know, the size of a funeral home or the size of your average sanctuary cannot, cannot hold all the people that want to celebrate me. Yeah? So something you don't know about me is I was the first great-grandchild of my family. We have a very large family. I am very used to being celebrated. You can just ask my cousin Rob back there in the back. I am very used to being celebrated. I was the youngest one in this large family until they decided to have other children. I don't know what happened there, but they lost their mind and decided to have other children. And then, But I was still the first great-grandchild. There was a Christmas that I got four bikes. That should give you an insight into why I am the way that I am. I got everything that I wanted. We have a tradition in our family that we actually just completed where we do a prize egg at Easter time. Can you imagine the generation of my family that we're between, you know, say 25 and 45 years old? We get Easter baskets every year and we go on the hunt for the prize egg and it's a big deal. I did not get the prize egg this year, but, but when I was a kid, I was always told where it was. It was always fixed. I had other cousins and aunts that would be like, Amanda, it's over here under the shed. Amanda, it's over here or whatever. And I still expected that. Like this year, I'm like, okay, who's telling me where the egg is? What are we doing? Like, do you know who I am? I'm Amanda. Like, we need to celebrate this. I need this prize egg. I don't know. They've lost their mind. As they've gotten older, they've gotten senile. They must have forgot that piece. Um, but I want my life to be celebrated. And I think you do too. Let's be honest with ourselves tonight. Don't get all holy and righteous on me and be like, 
No, Amanda, I'm just satisfied just living my life. Get over yourself, okay? No, I want my life to be celebrated. And I want my life to be celebrated because I want them to say, you know what? She told me about Jesus. She lived her life in a way that demonstrated everything that Jesus was. I want to know that I made a difference, Pastor. I want to make a difference. And so maybe for some of you, you come at this a little bit differently. Maybe you're not reading strange articles in the middle of the day called How to Have a Filled Funeral. I don't know. But maybe you're thinking, you know what? My life isn't going to mean anything unless I ever get married. My life isn't going to mean anything unless I have kids. My life isn't going to mean anything unless I get this promotion. My life isn't going to mean anything unless I ever travel to this place. And ultimately what we're saying is we're saying that we are waiting for life to come to us because we want all the gaps to be filled. That's ultimately what we're saying. We are looking for life, and that's what the crowd that gathers around Jesus is doing. They are looking for life, and Jesus knows this. They are after life. They are seeking life. They are looking to define their lives, and they believe in this moment that they have found that in Jesus. Because you see, there's some things that they would have heard. There's some things that they would have seen with Jesus. They, they would have known that he was a young teacher. They would have known that he was a young miracle worker, that he was a young prophet. If you would have been in that crowd, maybe you would have heard about the conversation he had with Philip. When Jesus says, before I met you, I saw you. And you would have thought Jesus had some divine knowledge. He said he had some divine power. Or maybe you would have been at the wedding celebration when he turned water into wine. And you were sitting there having conversations with your friends. And you took that sip of wine at the end of the celebration. And you thought, this is the best wine. And your buddy says, yeah, Jesus did that. He turned water into wine, and then everybody around you is celebrating that. Everybody around you is freaking out about that piece. Or maybe you heard the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. Maybe you heard how the city was buzzing about that conversation. Maybe you heard about Jesus healing the official son. Maybe you were even there. Maybe you saw it. Maybe you watched it happen. Maybe you were at the pool of Bethesda when you saw the man step into the pool and then come out of the pool healed. But what you would have been a part of is you would have been a part of a crowd to where you would have seen this rhythm of watching Jesus heal and then hearing Jesus teach. And each time that happened, it was followed by a crowd of people saying, there is life in him. We have found life in him. And when we get to chapter 6, at the beginning of that chapter, what happens is a, a very familiar story to us, but we have a crowd that has grown to the thousands. We have 5,000 men and another thousands of women, another thousands of children would have been present, and they're listening to Jesus teach, and they're physically getting hungry, physically getting hungry. And so they start to make their plan about how they're going to go and get food you know, Pastor Zach tells us often about the story of how, you know, his, his family goes to his office after every Sunday service, and it's always a, a discussion on what are we going to eat. That never happens in my family, and the reason why is because my sister always knows where she wants to eat. And it's always about her whenever it comes to dinner. I think we're just kind of like, it's okay, you know, it's fine, whatever you want. But Emily can tell you, I want Olive Garden, and this is what I'm going to have. I want this, and this is what I'm going to have. And so we just kind of let her control that. So we never make the decision on where we're going to eat. And there's even times that, you know, I've been traveling somewhere, and somebody's like, where do you want to eat? And I'm like, well, I don't know. My sister's not here. I don't know what I want to eat. I'm not for sure. Like, she plans out the food. You know, she plans out to the food. We went to the Cardinals game last night, and Emily knew that she wanted a cheeseburger, she wanted donuts, and she wanted french fries. And she knew exactly where to go to get those things, and I'm like, well, I just want a hot dog. Right? And so we separated for a minute, and then we come back together so I could eat her donuts. But, but she always knows, and they were really good, too. But she always knows where, you know, where she wants to eat. And so these people, they are, they're starting to get hungry. And they're thinking, well, maybe we have to go back to our village or we have to go back to our city. And Jesus says, no, you don't have to go anywhere. And so he grabs this young man. We know this story. He takes his lunch. He multiplies the bread. He multiplies the fish. And he feeds everyone there. And the people respond. And they say, this is the one they prophesied about. This is the one that they prophesied about. And Jesus has to slip out of the crowd 
Because he knows that this crowd of thousands is about to come and take him and force him to be king. That's what scripture tells us. But by the end of the conversation we just read, thousands are reduced to dozens. There's a massive shift in the heart of this massive crowd. And many of them leave that day and never return. How does that happen? How does that happen? Verse 60 tells us that Jesus offers communion and their response is these are hard words who can listen to them. Verse 66 in that same chapter says that that day they turned from Jesus and no longer with, walked with him. What happened? And what a, what a devastating day for Jesus in a way. I don't know what he was thinking or how, you know, what emotions that he was even feeling at that time. But to look out at a crowd that was made of thousands of people. And you've just got your 12. Jesus looks at a crowd that is looking for life. They are seeking life. And he provides them an option for life and they reject it. He provided that to them in the way of communion. And they reject it. They do not accept it. They're coming to Jesus looking for life. They're looking for relationship. And Jesus responds that search. He responds to that search by exposing their emptiness. You see, the kind of intimate relationship that takes place when we experience communion, it, ex it exposes some things in us. It exposes some things in us, and that's why many of us shy away from that type of intimate relationship with Christ. But communion exposes our need. It exposes our motivation. It exposes our allegiance, and it does all of this not to condemn, but to give us a more personal relationship with our Father. Look at verses 25 through 26 with me. Chapter, John chapter 6. Verse 25 says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. I love that Jesus doesn't really answer their question. I, I love that about him, that he does that to other people. I'm not such a fan when he does it to me, but I like it whenever he does it to other people. And Jesus completely changes the subject and the people say, when did you get here? And he says, you don't really want to know. You're not really asking me the question that you want to ask me. You're, you don't even really want me, but what you're wanting to do is you're just simply wanting to know if I'm going to give you bread. You're wanting to know if I'm going to meet your physical need. That's why you want me. You don't actually want me. You want what I can do for you. And so he exposes that need. And the people make a reference to an event that happened way back in the book of Exodus. And if you don't understand that, refer that reference, you may feel like that you're watching kind of an interaction about a movie that you've never seen. But again, we go back to the book of Exodus and we see that the people are referencing bread. They are experiencing bread. And so the people are in slavery. There's a tyrant named Pharaoh who's enslaving God's people and he's murdering his people and he's oppressing his people. And so God sends Moses. And he sends his plagues and he delivers his people and he delivers them from slavery with a mighty hand and he brings them out of the waters to the Red Sea and to the wilderness. And in chapter 15 of Exodus, they sing a song called the Song of Moses and they're saying, God is our deliverer, God is strong, God prevailed over Pharaoh and chariots. But then in chapter 16, they're singing another song and that song is God had abandoned us. God has abandoned us. God has, he's not providing food. And so what happens is they get into the wilderness and they say, we had food in Egypt. And it was good food. God, you have brought us out here into the wilderness and you do not provide for us. That's ultimately what the children of Israel are doing in this particular moment. And so God provides, and we know this, that he sends bread from heaven called manna. And I will tell you another little story. I thought manna was a bird until I was about 19 years old. It just made sense to me that that's how he provided it. I don't know where I was in Sunday school class whenever they taught that lesson. I'm not for sure, but I thought manna was a bird. It is not a bird, okay? It is bread. <laughs> so he sends this bread, and he sends enough manna for them every day. Just enough for that day. And on the sixth day, he sends them out and he tells them together enough for the weekend. And we call that the Sabbath. God sends this manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. And he sends it to his people for 40 years. He provides. Every day they wake up and God provides. Every day they wake up and God provides. And if you fast forward through that event in Exodus 16, 
and you fast forward a couple thousand years, you see that there's a prophecy that's given, and that prophecy says that Christ who is going to come, and they're talking about the Messiah, that the Christ who is going to come, guess what he's going to bring? He's going to bring bread. And then you fast forward from that prophecy a couple hundred years, and guess where we are? We're in John chapter 6. And they just watched Jesus multiply the loaves. And so, of course, what decision do they come to or conclusion? They come to the conclusion that this is the Messiah. Because we experienced manna. It was prophesied that the Messiah would bring bread. And now we just watch this man multiply the loaves. He brought us bread again. But yet they still walked away. They still walked away. And they say that this has to be the Messiah, and they come to Jesus and they start this conversation. And they're not coming to him saying, you are the bread. They're not recognizing who he is. They're not coming to him and saying that you are God become man to save us from our sins. They say, we want more bread. We want more bread. Do you have any more bread? And this is where the conflict starts. This is where the conflict starts. And this is where Jesus starts to expose certain things about their expectation. He starts to expose things about their heart, and Jesus attacks them at their need. And he says, your perceived need is not your actual need. Your perceived need is not your actual need. You're coming to me thinking, there is more manna on the way. How great would it be if this man standing in front of us fed us again for 40 years? But that's not your actual need. You see, if you know... Anything about the Greek language, you know that sometimes there are multiple words that can be used to tran be translated into one word in the English language. Life is one of those instances. If I was to come up to you and if I was to say in a panic, is he alive? You know what that means. But then if I was to come up to you in a different way and say, how's life? That is a very different meaning. That is a very different understanding, right? Same word, but in the Greek, they have different words. So one of those words in the Greek is, of course, bios. And what bios means is it means the physical life. It means the material life. We see bios used in scriptures like Luke chapter 8, for example, where we have the woman who has been sick for a decade, and scripture tells us that she's gone from doctor to doctor to doctor looking for a cure, and she spent all of her life, a bios life, on medical bills. In other words, she has spent all of her money, she has spent all of her material life, all of her physical life looking for a cure. But then there's a second thing that John could have used, and it was Zoe. And this is not talking about a physical life. This is talking about a life that transcends the physical. This is talking about the quality of life. It's talking about an eternal life. And Paul uses Zoe in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, whenever he says that we've been buried with Christ and raised to walk in eternal life, a Zoe life. And so John is writing this down, and he has an option. Do I reference the physical life or do I reference the eternal life? And he has these two words that he can use and he knows what is taking place here and the people are coming to Jesus looking for bread. They're wanting to see something physical in order to meet their physical need and we expect to see bios being used here. But that's not what John does. John uses zoe. And he says, don't look for food that perishes, but look for food of Zoe. Look for food of eternal life. In other words, your hunger that you think you have is not a physical hunger. Your thirst transcends your physical thirst. You have a Zoe need that you are trying to fill with a bios solution, and it will fail you. Jesus exposes their need, and he says, look, you're concerned with your stomach. But communion shifts your focus from your stomach to your heart. Communion shifts your focus from your stomach to your heart. And I read about these people. And I think, man, they still don't get it. And as I sit in my seat of judgment over them, I'm humbled by the reality that I don't get it either. I'm humbled by the reality that I have just accepted that this is a, a, just, this is a desire of the human heart, right? That this is just something that happens. This is a deception of the human heart. And we all know that something's wrong. I don't think any of us read these instances and we think that, that everything is okay here. I don't think any of us read that these people walked away from Christ and we think, oh, that's no big deal. I don't think that we respond that way, but I wonder if we agree on what the actual problem is. Do we agree on what the actual problem is? You see, as we have this human tendency to 
minimize our problems and look for solutions to our problems that we can control. We still want control even within our solutions. We will say, God, I surrender to you. God, I want inner communion with you. But it has to look the way that I want it to look. It has to meet my expectations. We want to be able to manage it. But what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, whatever you're looking for in life, that's what you're feasting on. That's what your meat is. That's what your drink is. That's what you're looking for for sustenance. And if you find your life in things that perish... You will never be filled. The high is going to wear off. That pleasure is going to be fleeting. The compliments will fade. And ultimately, none of these things will fill you because you need an eternal solution to your eternal need. And he says, here's communion. Here's communion. Look at verse 28 through 34. It says, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked Jesus replied, this is the work of God. I really want to think that he wants to add stupid there. Sorry, but I think he does. I think he's like, listen here, dummy. This is the work of God. I think he would add that into the text. That you believe in the one he has sent. Verse 30, what sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? They asked, what are you going to perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, and Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Give us this bread always. They miss it. They miss what he's saying. And they think, okay, there's some kind of manna 2.0 that's going to fall from the sky here and tell us what we need to do to get that. And Jesus exposes their motivations and he says, you're not here for me. You're here because of the benefits that I can give you. And that's why their response is, how do we earn it? What work can we do? Because when you remove relationship, all you have is work. And what the people in the crowd want to do is they want to barter with God. They don't want Jesus. They just want Jesus to be kind of the mediator between them and God. They want Jesus to be able to go to God and say, these people deserve the gifts that you want to provide. They don't want him to be Messiah. They want him to be a mediator. They don't want relationship with him. Instead, they just want him to meet their physical need. And so if you were brave enough to write at the top of your notebook, Jesus and Jelly Roll, this is where you need to lean in. This is where that gets explained. So Jelly Roll is a very popular country singer right now. If you were to see this man, you would not think country music. He does not look like Conway Twitty. I mean, his name is Jelly Roll. How did we go from Conway Twitty to Jelly Roll, for crying out loud? I mean, that that concerns me. What does that say about our society? What does that say? We won't go there. I am a country music fan. And when I say country music fan, the more depressing, the better. I don't know why. I'm probably very disturbed. But you can can ask my mom. My mom can verify this. I am a huge Conway Twitty fan. I like old, old country music. Um, And so I'm one of those people that even though I do not consider myself old, I'm like, that's not country music. His name's Jelly Roll. He's not wearing a belt buckle and some cowboy boots. Right? Like, that's not what we're singing about. He never talks about a farm. Country music even talks about a farm. We need to lose stuff. We need to, whatever happens in country music, it's all kinds of crazy things. But I was driving back to my office today. I hardly ever have the radio on. I'm I'm someone who I always have music playing on my phone because I don't like commercials. I'm a very picky person. (laughs) I don't don't like commercials. And so, but for some reason, I don't know, uh, God decided that my phone did not need to connect to my system in my car so I could hear Jelly Roll. This was a divine moment from the Holy Spirit that Jelly Roll came across my radio when I was in my car. Because here's the words that I hear. I only talk to God when I need a favor. I only pray when I don't have a prayer. So who am I to expect a Savior? What? Jelly Roll, you got some wisdom. You got some revelation from God there, Jelly Roll. So I had to go back to my office and I had to research Jelly Roll. Now, I do not recommend his music. Get the radio edited version. 
Some of it can be kind of rough. But this particular song is called, I Need a Favor. And I'm going to read those lyrics to you again. I only talk to God when I need a favor. I only pray when I don't have a prayer. So who am I to expect a savior? And I thought that is the most honest thing I have ever heard. Because you see, I talk to people all the time. And they will tell me, they don't have a relationship with God. They will tell me that they don't read their Bible. They will tell me that they don't go to church. But they will tell me that they believe in who he is. And I don't understand how you can do that. I'm going to be honest with you, but our country singer Jelly Roll here says, who am I to ask for a savior when I only reach out to him whenever I need something from him? Jelly Roll and Jesus are saying the same thing. And I've got to stop saying the word Jelly Roll because we need to get serious here. But they're saying the exact same thing. He's expressing in a very raw way of what Jesus is saying in John chapter 16 and what the crowd is expressing with Jesus by saying, I want all the blessings of God, but I don't want any of the responsibility. I want all the benefits of God, but I don't want to have to actually be vulnerable and enter into a place of intimate relationship with him. In his response to the crowd, Jesus exposes the danger of impersonal religion and impersonal religious activity. And in some cases, that's what the sacrament of communion has become to us. It's not personal. I want to draw us back in to the personal, vulnerable relationship with communion. You see, I heard a story. I heard a story, it's been a couple years ago, and it was a story about a man who was a missionary. And he was ministering in a desert region, and, and he, he served, and he loved the people. And the way that he ministered, would he would take water to these places. And, and so he would, he would take clean water to the villages that didn't have clean water, and he would gather all of this up, and, and he would you know, put this on his wagon, and he would have barrels and barrels of clean water. And, and he would take it, and he would distribute it to the people. And so one day he does this, just like you know, many other days before, and he leaves the city, and he takes the water to the first village, and then he leaves the first village, and he goes to the second village, but he never makes it. And so after a couple days pass, they send somebody out to look for him. And they find him on his wagon, surrounded by the water that he was taking to the villages. And so they take his body and they take him to, you know, to, the, to the medical, uh, the one who runs the medical facility in their village or the, the medical tent or whatever the case may be. And they examine the body and they say, this man died of thirst. He died of thirst with water all around him. Everything he needed to stay alive was in his reach, but he failed to drink. If we are in this for the benefits of Christianity, but not the Christ of Christianity, we are that guy. We are that guy. We come to church. We give our money. We do religious things. We will take the sacrament of communion, but we will never actually drink. We are motivated by guilt. We are motivated by self-righteousness. We're motivated by our emotions. We're motivated by our friends and family. We're even motivated by being in the Bible Belt culture, and we never drink. And so we never taste and see everything that God is. If this is us, then it's going to manifest itself in a few different ways in our lives. If we are in this for the benefits and not the relationship, there is going to be a disparity between the public appearance of our relationship and the private reality of it. We talk about God, but we don't talk to God. We talk a lot about God's word, but we don't read God's word, believing that what matters most is what everyone else says around us in public rather than what God says about us in the quiet. You want to look like him, but you don't actually get that way by circumventing a relationship with him. It's impossible. Those things don't come wanting things from him. Those things come by wanting communion with him. He exposes their motivation. And he says, this is why you're here. And in John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And the rest of this chapter is Jesus just unpacking that statement. And it's this turning point from the crowd. It's this turning point for the crowd. It's this definition of life and relationship that they simply cannot accept. And Jesus says, I have come not to bring you bread. I have come to be the bread. 
I have come not to improve your life, but I have come to be your life. And they reject that relationship with him and they reject this definition of life with him. And Jesus is saying, I am everything that you need. I am everything that you've been looking for to have me and nothing else is to have everything. So turn from whatever it is that you're currently looking to for life. And the crowd says, can't do it. Jesus is standing in front of them, offering them communion. And they say, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it because I want a tangible fulfillment of my need right now. I want you to meet my cravings. And cravings are a very serious thing. And the people are saying that I wanted the guy, I wanted the God, I wanted the Messiah that was going to send me bread whenever I asked for it and not expect anything of me. And what you're asking me to do, this vulnerability, this intimate relationship that you're drawing me into, it is too much. I don't want that life. Jesus demands allegiance from them. He demands allegiance from them. And their response is, this is too hard. This is too hard. Who can accept this teaching? That was their words. And what I find most intriguing about all of this is how long that crowd would have walked with Jesus. You see, John's gospel mostly covers about the third year of Jesus' ministry. When this conversation happens, Jesus is exiting year two and entering year three. And this means that some of them had walked with him. They had been with him for over two years. They had heard him, they had, but yet they still missed him. They wanted Jesus to conform to their own image and to their own expectations. And they were around him. They were affected by him. They experienced him. They were impassioned by him, impressed with him. And they still missed him because they never stepped into communion with him. As a result, they missed life. And I'm afraid that may be where some of us are. Maybe you've been at this for a long time. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the bread of life, so turn from whatever it is that you are trying to find your life in. And my fear is that we look at the bread that is in our hands and we look at Jesus and we close our hands around what we have and we say, I have all that I need. I have all that I need. I have all that I need in my job. I have all that I need in my education. I have all that I need in my dreams. I even have all that I need in my sin. And if you're telling me, Jesus, that to get to you, I have to give up all of this, then I can't do that, so I'm just going to walk away. If that's you, then let me plead with you tonight. Jesus is the only bread that breaks for us. Jesus is the only bread that breaks for us. Of all the other breads out there, he is the only one that breaks for us. All the other breads break us. They break us. Try it, it will perish. It will leave you wanting. It will leave you broken. But Jesus comes along and he says, I am the bread of life. And he finds us starving, with, starving to death with a stomach full of substitutes, eating to become hungry again, drinking to become thirsty again, looking for life and never finding it. And he says, I'm what you're looking for. I'm all that you need. I'm enough for you. Come to this table and come to this table, not as a guest, but as a child of the home. And then he goes to the cross and the bread of life is broken for us. He dies in our place. He bears the penalty that was ours to bear. He raises again in victory over sin and death. So hungry sinners might feast on grace. That thirsty sinners might drink of forgiveness and the cups of love and the cups of relationship. But there are two groups here. There's the crowd that walks away. And then there's the disciples that stay. There are two groups here. Look at John chapter 6, verse 66 through 69. I know we're walking through a lot of scripture tonight. John chapter 6, verse 66 through 69. This is from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Therefore, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? 
You have the words of eternal life. You have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And what we see here is we see the difference as far as in responses between a superficial relationship without communion and an intimate relationship with communion. A superficial relationship said these words are too hard. Who can listen? But an intimate relationship fostered in a life of communion, communion hears these words and says, Jesus, your words are life. And there is life in them. An intimate relationship through communion softened by the words of Jesus, sustained by the words of Jesus. Because you see, relationship doesn't have it all figured out. Relationship doesn't not wrestle. Relationship doesn't have all their questions answered. Relationship just simply and basically in a very true way comes to Jesus and says, where will we go? See, I was walking through a season of my life, and I, I couldn't make sense of God, and I knew that he was good, but to be honest, I was starting to think that maybe he just wasn't willing to be good to me. And throughout that season, I later found out that my mom had a conversation with God about me, and my mother is here today. Uh, I love my mom very much, so forgive me for telling this story. I don't think you'll get too upset. <laughs> I told you I'm scared of them. Um, but I found out that my mom had a conversation about God. And here's what you need to know about my family in a sense. Uh, I'm really the one that like handles everything. And when I say that, like I'm a take charge personality. Okay. And my mom's like, yes, it was a whole ordeal whenever you were a child. But I'm a take charge personality. I'm not the one who, um, when I'm upset, my whole family falls apart. They do. My sister falls apart, she gets mad, my, my dad does crazy things, my mom gets mad, everybody gets mad. When I'm upset, they don't know how to handle that because it's very rare, okay? It's very rare. So there was one day, this is a different story, and I'll, I'll tell this quickly, but there was one day that um, I was, and I may have shared this before, I don't remember, but um, I was upset about something, and, and I, I, just, I just needed to talk to my mom, and so of course I went home, and my mom wasn't there, and my dad was there, and I'm like, okay, I'll settle for you. Uh, and I love my dad very much, but what I needed, see, I go to my dad when I need somebody to get angry with me. I go to my mom when I need her to be like, well, just love him like Jesus. And sometimes I avoid my mom because I don't want to hear that. I want somebody like my dad that's going to be like, let's take him out. Yes. This moment, I, I walk in, and my dad's sitting there, and um, I start to open my heart to him, and I begin to cry, and I can tell that he's getting very uncomfortable. <laughs> because if it would have been Emily, he would have known how to handle that. But I don't do this. I don't cry in those situations because I'm hurt. I normally already have a plan of how we're going to do it. And so I lay my heart out before him, and I share this with him, and he takes this deep breath whenever I get finished, and I'm like, okay, this is that father wisdom, and I have a great father. And he's like, I'm thinking this is where that fatherly wisdom is going to come. And he says, Amanda, did you hear the Cardinals got a new pitcher? <laughs> what? what? What does it have to do with anything? And I'm like, I just need a hug. <laughs> and at that moment, my dad gets up and he wraps me in his arms. And, and so that's kind of the, the dynamic here. So I need you to understand this prayer that my mother prayed, okay? And so I found out later on that during the season of difficulty, my mom had a conversation about God with me. And this is what she says. She says, if Amanda chooses to walk away from you, it's your fault. That's a bold prayer. Like, Mom, what were you doing? That's a bold prayer. And as she shared this with me, towards the end of that season, I remember thinking in all of my hurt, and all of my disappointment, I never thought about walking away. I never thought about walking away because where would I go? Where would I go? But I had made this decision that I would just continue to sit at his table and I would understand that maybe not everything is for me. And you know what happened? Every time I would move into communion with my father, he would show me something new. He would whisper in my ear whenever I would come to the table. He would whisper in my ear, this is all yours. This is all yours. And he would pick something up and he would offer it to me and it would be sweet. And it would be pleasant. And it would be good. And in that relationship, in that communion relationship, healing took place and restoration took place. Because where would I go? Where would I go? And that's what Peter says. 
Peter says, where would I go, Jesus? Where would we go? What rabbi would teach us like you? We heard you teach in the temple. Who has authority like you? We saw you walk on water. Who has power like you? We were there when you calmed the storm. Who has mercy like you? We heard you with the woman at the well. Who has, incur- who has courage like you? We saw you before the mobs. We saw you on trial. We saw you speak truth in the face of your accusers. Who has faith like you? We heard you weeping in the garden when you said, not my will, but your will be done. Who has love like you? We saw you beaten. We saw you mocked. We saw you nailed to the cross and driven in the ground. Who has grace like you? We heard you speak forgiveness over your enemies. Who has victory like you? We saw you walk over death's dead body out of the way of the grave. So death has no sting and death has no victory. Who has rule like you? You ascended to the right hand of the Father and everything is in subjection under your feet. Jesus, who has an ending like you? You will burst through the clouds and you will bring final and complete defeat over our enemies. Final and complete restoration of all that was lost. Where would we go? There is no other place that we can step into. Where would we go? And that's what communion does for us. That's what this communion relationship, this intimate relationship, is when everything is falling apart, we can boldly stand and say the way that Peter said, Jesus, you're it. You are life, and we recognize that you are life. And if you want me to give everything else up, it doesn't matter because you are everything to me. Where would I go? You see, I can make my life about what I wanted. I can make my life about what I wanted, or I could come to the bread of life. I could enter in communion with my papa and never thirst again. Where would we go? Stand with me tonight. There is no life outside of Jesus. None. There is no life outside of Jesus. And this is my desire for us tonight. Is that we would arrive at this place of communion. That no matter what our circumstance is. No matter what level of relationship we are walking in. That in every single one of us. We would have this foundational confession of our heart. That says Jesus where would we go? Life is about you. Where would we go? Pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your glory. I thank you because you are a life giver. Father, you are a promise keeper. You are everything that we need, Lord. You are all things to us, Father, and we find all things in you, God. And so, Father, I pray that if there is anyone under the sound of my voice who is holding on to a bread that is temporary, that, Father, they release that right now and they run to the only thing that is eternal. And so, God, we call out to you tonight, Father. Draw us into you, and, Lord, we say yes to you. We don't don't say maybe later we don't say tomorrow we say tonight we say yes to you father that we want communion with you we come to your table tonight lord father not as a guest but as a child of the home we come to you father to open up for you to open up everything that you have for us lord because you are everything that we need you are life father where would we go we thank you and we praise you in your name amen